We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. I need to be in Psalm 19 and 20 with you, so let's get there. We had the long one last uh, time, Psalm 18, 50 verses. That's a good psalm. A psalm of, uh, of David, isn't it? Also occurs in uh, 2 Samuel 22, I believe. A parallel passage there. But we're in Psalm 19 and 20 this evening. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the superscription says... Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of His chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Psalm 20. Again, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, says the superscription. Verse 1, what a wonderful prayer. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. Selah. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. 
Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen. But we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the King answer us when we call. And may God bless that the reading of his word tonight. We uh, invite the youngsters to go to their Truth Trackers Club and trust that they will be memorizing some good scripture tonight, from the youngest to the oldest. And we invite Jansen to come up and share the word with us now. We're looking forward to it, brother. Thank you. Well, good evening. Grateful to have you here with us this evening. Would you please turn in your Bible to Ezra chapter 5 this evening? Lord willing, we'll look at chapters 5 and 6 together this evening as kind of one unit, uh, lengthier than, well, lengthier unit than which, what we typically cover, but I think they do go together and help us understand the overarching point of this passage as Ezra records it here in, in his account of uh, Israel's return, or the first return, and then second return to the land of Israel after their deportation under uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, as we've talked about, and uh, you probably are familiar with that from other studies in, in the book of, in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and uh, also in Second Chronicles. In Ezra chapter 5 and 6, we learn of the completion of the temple, finally, after a long stint, a long hiatus, really, of 16 years or so of not doing any work on the temple after they had done some work originally, that is, they laid the foundation of the temple and they rebuilt the altar. We talked about that, saw that in, uh, in Ezra chapter 4. But now we, uh, now we look ahead here to uh, about 16 years later in 520 B.C. is the setting of Ezra chapter 5. And then by the time we get to the end of chapter 6, we're about uh, four years into the story. So at uh, 516, 515 B.C., we find ourselves the temple completed, the dedication and worship before the Lord but uh, we're getting a bit of ahead of ourselves here, and so let's begin by uh, just going to the Lord in a word of prayer before we look at the text this evening. Heavenly Father, I ask now as we look into your word, may your spirit teach us, guide us, exhort us, instruct us in the things of God that we might learn of your character more, and as a result, Lord, do your will and do it obediently and in faith. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. We see uh, at the beginning of chapter 5 that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene and they spiritually revitalize the people of Israel. And we see this in the first two verses. And then uh, later in chapter 5, we see that the Israelites, uh, their obedience and faith are tested yet again as it already had been a number of times through the opposition that they faced from outside the community by those who didn't want the work to continue. 
And then uh, in chapter 6, in the first 12 verses, we see the decree of Cyrus is discovered, uh, and we see King Darius's reply after an inquiry is re- made concerning the building of the temple. I'm just giving kind of an overview here before we look more specifically at these texts, this text. And then uh, we see at the end of chapter 6, in verses 13 to 22, the Israelites worship the Lord upon the completion of the temple. But this unit of text begins by looking at the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and the influence they had upon the people of Israel. And uh, in order to understand their message, we will briefly survey the prophecies that they gave, the messages that they proclaimed, although we'll leave you know, a study of Haggai and Zechariah for some other time, a more in-depth study, but we'll kind of survey it in brief in order to understand how it was that they had such an influence on the people so that they began once again to build the temple. Look with me, though, at chapter 5. As I read the first two verses, you can follow along here. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Then the prophet Haggai, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu, the prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jazadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them or assisting them. Remember, uh, just to review for a minute, uh, the Israelites, upon their return, did begin to rebuild uh, the foundation of the temple, and they also built the altar. And that was in around 536, 537 B.C., but then they faced a lot of opposition. And uh, what Ezra did back in chapter 4 is he detailed some of the opposition that they faced at that time. And then he fast-forwarded in Israel's history to the time of... um, to the time of King Artaxerxes, later on when they faced more opposition, and then in verse 24, they return, he returns in the story back to uh, the timeline in which we find uh, chapter 5, which was in five, uh, 536 or so, 537 B.C., and then the completion of that temple in 516. But Again, chapter 5 begins here in 520 B.C. with the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. And so the silence in Jerusalem is broken by new revelation from God through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah that would bring about a spiritual revitalization in the hearts of Israel and its leaders. For 16 years or so, they did nothing. They were opposed, the work was opposed, and so they ceased to do any work for about 16 years or so, and there was silence in that sense in Jerusalem. Nothing was happening, at least nothing that pertained to the temple and, and the rebuilding of the temple. They, of course, were living their lives, you know, working, you know, uh, you know, bringing in the food and the resources they needed to exist in the land, you know, doing the kind of mundane things of life, but nothing was happening Uh, with the house of God for about 16 years. 
And here we see the contemporary prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, preach similar yet distinct messages intended to incite repentance in the hearts of the Israelites and a renewed spirit to finish rebuilding the temple. And so at this point, we have to briefly survey, I think, the messages of Haggai and Zechariah to understand how it was that they did incite this repentance and a renewed spirit to finish rebuilding the temple. And so if you would turn just for a moment to Haggai chapter 1, Haggai chapter 1, in verse 1, it says, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, or Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. The prophecy of Haggai comes in four messages, or in four stages. And uh, again, we won't look at those in detail, but there's four messages that come that we see here in the book of Haggai that Haggai preached to the leaders of Israel, specifically Zerubbabel and, uh, and Joshua, but also probably all the heads of the households of, of the Israelites. And then that message was then you know, dispersed throughout uh, to all the people in Jerusalem at that time. The first and second messages of Haggai center around Israel's disobedience of neglecting to rebuild the temple. We saw that just now as he read verse 2, that the people of Israel were saying, the time has not come to build the temple, when in fact the time was now. The time was 16 years before, really, and they're still saying the time has not come. Really, what they're saying is we're not, we're not willing to rebuild the temple there's more important matters to attend to, and so they're neglecting, they're apathetic about the situation, they're complacent, they're, they have mis, you know, misprioritizing things in their life, focusing more on the mundane things of life versus the house of God, which was sitting in ruins, nothing was happening. And so there was complacency and, a mis, and misprioritization in the hearts of the Israelites. And so the first and second messages center around this disobedience and neglect to rebuild the temple. And there is a call to rebuild the temple uh, with its attendant blessings and curses if they obey. And if they disobey that call, then, well, there's the, the, uh, the curses that come with that. Also in these first and second messages, there is a promise or proclamation of the future glory of the temple in the millennial kingdom. And so what Haggai does is not only focuses on the here and now as far as their com the command to rebuild the temple, but he also uh, looks into the future and proclaims about the future temple, the one we see in the millennial kingdom, and its glory as kind of a motivation for them to, to rebuild the temple here and now. The third message of Haggai concerns the principles of cleanness and uncleanness in the lives of the Israelites. Really what he's talking about there is that the defiled hearts of the Israelites resulted in defiled works. Because their hearts were defiled, everything they did was defiled. 
and he draws upon principles from the Mosaic law to, to, uh, to proclaim that message. The fourth and final message of Haggai has to do with the future defeat of the Gentile kingdoms, which have caused much difficulty for Israel over the years. And, of course, that will culminate in the, in the millennial kingdom when God uh, defeats uh, Israel's enemies and uh, establishes his kingdom. Consider uh, just for a moment some of the words of Haggai that would have stirred up the hearts of the Israelites. And indeed it did that. We see that. We read that uh, just a moment ago in in Ezra chapter 5 at the beginning there. But uh, consider these words of of the messages of Haggai, beginning with verse 3 through 5 in chapter 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, is it time for, your, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses in this temple to lie in ruins? You know, just think about that for a moment, that kind of indicting message, convicting message. Verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. A call to repentance, a call to consider the fact that they had neglected God's house and we're focusing, you know, on, on the mundane things of life, you know, how their house looks, you know, the paneled houses that are nice and pristine, you know, that were comforts for them. But at the same time, the temple laid in shambles and ruins. Look at uh, verses 7 through 10 of chapter 1. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That's a, uh, a repeating theme of Haggai. Consider your ways. In other words, pause Consider your faults. Consider how you should obey God and his word. Verse 8, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. Verse 9, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my, ho- because of my house that it is in ruins while every one of you runs into his house. Therefore the heavens above will withhold the dew, and the earth withhold its fruits. For I called for a drought on the land, and the mountains, on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So the Israelites were experiencing God's cursing, God's punishment in the land, because they failed to give attention to the house of God. And therefore, their lives were made much more difficult in the land because of that. Uh, Look at chapter 2, verses 4 to 9. It says, Haggai speaks to uh, the people, and he says, "Yet, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. That would have been an encouraging word to cause the spirit of the Israelites to, to be encouraged to do what God had told them to do, the fact that God was with them. He would be with them and uh, would cause them to prosper. Don't be afraid. 
Look at uh, verses 15 to 19 of chapter 2. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, ephahs, there were, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the, t- from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is, it. is the seed still in the barn? Is yet the vine? The fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. And so the promise of God's blessing would have encouraged the spirits of Zerubbabel and and uh, Jeshua, as well as all the people of Israel, to obey God's command and to rebuild the temple. Zechariah also has a similar yet distinct message for the people. And we're told in uh, Zechariah 1.1 that he prophesied in the eighth month of the second year of King Darius, the same year that Haggai's message came. And Zechariah's message is multi faceted and it's it's longer than Haggai's it's 14 chapters and so we really can't look at it in any detail this evening but simply to say he begins by calling Israel to repent in verses 1 to 6 and then he goes on to give eight visions were which were meant to uh, encourage the people of God to rebuild the temple he goes on to question the sincerity of their rituals as well as prophesy of Jerusalem's future blessing, again, in the millennial kingdom. He then goes on in chapters 9 to 14 for a a long stint of time. He gives two different oracles or burdens which concern the coming of the Messiah and his rejection, as well as future deliverance, cleansing, and the inauguration of the millennial kingdom. And so that's a very broad overview of the message of Zechariah, which was meant to cause the people to repent and to renew their spirit to finish the rebuilding of the temple. And these messages we see in Ezra chapter 5, as we look back there, had a profound effect on the hearts of the Israelites. And if we were to study these two prophecies out in detail, we could see further how, in fact, that did happen and you know, why it was that it had such a profound influence on them. Well, we see uh, back in Ezra chapter 5 that Zerubbabel and Jeshua responded very positively, along with the rest of the Israelites, to the prophet's messages. We see in verse 2 of Ezra 5 that the prophets supported these two leaders as they set out to finish rebuilding the temple in their prophesying, prophesying is what caused them to prosper in the work. The very message, messages that they spoke was what had a great influence in their hearts. And that's how God's word works, doesn't it? When, we, when it sinks in, when we meditate upon it, even like we talked about or heard in the Psalms here this evening, when we meditate upon it and cause it to kind of seep into our hearts, it can have a profound influence on not just our thinking, but also our behavior, our conduct, and what we do. 
Perhaps the prophets even supported them, not just through their prophesying, but even you know, putting their hand to the plow, so to speak, and helping with the rebuilding itself. That's what good leaders do. They help. They come alongside and, and help uh, the people in the work. Well, we move on to see that the Israelites' obedience and faith is tested yet again. And that, uh, I think, is Ezra purposely uh, juxtaposes these two things. The fact that the prophecies influenced the leaders and the Israelites greatly, but at the same time, there's yet again a test of their obedience and faith. God's message has come to encourage them, to cause them to, uh, to fulfill his word and to rebuild the temple, yet at the same time, verse 3 tells us, there's another test of their obedience and faith. And we see this in verses 13 through 17. We won't read the whole thing for sake of time, but Look with me at verse 3. It says, At the same time, that is, at the same time that these prophecies came, Tataniah, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then accordingly we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. Verse 5, but the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Tatanai uh, was a governor, we, we learn here, of the province beyond the river. The river uh, usually refers to, when, we, when it's we see it in this kind of setting, to the river Euphrates. So Babylon sitting there just beyond the Euphrates, beyond the river would mean any kind of area to the west or southwest of the Euphrates, the the land of Palestine as we know it today, the land of Israel. And so this governor, Tatani, was the governor of this region. And we see that he, along with his companions, inquire about the rebuilding of the temple. And while this inquiry does not suggest the same kind of hostility that Israel had faced already, the narrator, Ezra, presents it as another possible delay in the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, Tatanai and his, com- and his company questioned their permission to rebuild the temple. We just read that in verse 3. As the governor of the region, Tatanai wanted to be sure that the king had authorized such a significant building project, such as the reason being that perhaps it posed a possibility of a revolt against the king. And so, you know, Tatanai not, not, wasn't necessarily being hostile in his questioning, but simply wanting to make sure that, okay, this isn't some revolt that's going to, uh, you know, going to take place because there's a temple being rebuilt, you know, the city of Jerusalem is being repopulated. Is there any cause for concern here? And it's his, you know, prerogative, his responsibility to make sure that wasn't the case. And so he questions their permission and and their authority to rebuild the temple. We see that uh, Tatanai also questioned the elders of Israel concerning the names of those who are building the temple. And it's possible then that the list we saw in Ezra chapter 2 came about as a result of this inquiry. You know, a list was created and we see that recorded 
by Ezra in chapter 2. Of course, this is somewhat speculation, but it's possible that's where that uh, list came from or was a result of. Despite the possibility of delay, Ezra describes God's providential care over Israel through uh, anthropomorphic language by stating that the eye of their God, we see this in verse 5, the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that the work continued unhindered. And that language we see throughout uh, other places in the Old Testament, it's the fact that God's eye is upon them. Typically, you know, the truth behind that is that God is watching over his people. His watch care is over them, whether a specific person or in some cases the whole nation of Israel. We actually see later in Ezra chapter 7, in uh, chapter 8, a number of times, similar to language used, where Ezra says that the hand of the Lord was upon them. Both the eye of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, being anthropomorphic language, are meant to, meant to teach us that God was watching over his people providentially to make sure that they were cared for and that his purposes were completed. Now, Tatanai's inquiry could have easily resulted in another major setback for the people in rebuilding the temple. And so the spiritual crisis that Ezra wants us to understand here is that there's a real possibility of a relapse into discouragement, complacency, and apathy in the hearts of the Israelites. Even though Haggai and Zechariah had just preached a message of repentance and a call to rebuild the temple, there's a real possibility of discouragement, a relapse of discouragement and complacency in the hearts of the Israelites. And so the tension is whether or not God's people will listen to God's message as prophesied through the prophets or whether they will continue in discouragement and disobedience to God's word. But of course, to stop working just because there's this possible delay or possibility of delay, would be to ignore God's command to build according to the prophecies which Haggai and Zechariah preached. Now, how exactly the work went unhindered is not you know, detailed. You know, why is it that Tatanai didn't just say, you know what, stop the work, and until we find, or find out you know, what the king wants, I don't want you doing any more work on the building. That, that, that could have been a real situation a real possibility, but why, why did that, that not happen? Well, verse, tell, excuse me, verse 5 tells us the eye of their God was upon them. Perhaps God guided Tatanai's heart so that he exhibited a kind of sympathetic attitude toward Israel on the matter. Regardless of how God worked, the author repeatedly makes clear that the reestablishment of the covenant community was a result of God's continuing act of providence. God's eye was upon them. Now Ezra chapter 5 verses 16 to 17 records the contents of the letter sent to Darius. It contains introductory and closing remarks by Tatanai as well as the reply of Israel's leaders to Tatanai's inquiry. Look at uh, the end of verse 5, it says, 
or excuse me, uh, just the beginning of verse 5. It says, But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai sent. And we see we could read that letter in detail. We won't read it all this evening, except to make a few remarks concerning the contents of that, le- of that letter. In verse 11, note that Israel identifies as the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And I think this speaks to the revitalized spirit of God's people, that they are willing to identify themselves with the God of heaven and earth, the sovereign God. They're not ashamed of that. They're not, you know, ashamed of, you know, the pot or afraid of the, you know, the recourse of saying something like that. Instead, they boldly proclaim themselves as servants of the God of heaven and earth. In verses 11 through 16 in the letter here, we see that Israel emphasizes the continuity of their work, both in the existence of a previous temple and Cyrus's decree to rebuild the temple. In verse 12, we see that Israel candidly admits that the reason for the destruction of the previous temple and their deportation was their disobedience. We also see that Israel provides specific details concerning Cyrus's decree, making it more likely to secure King Darius's approval of the project. The fact that they were able to give specific details concerning this decree would you know, only further uh, secure or you know, uh, cause the, the king to look favorably, favorably upon the situation. And then in verse 17, we see that Tatanai requests that a search be made for Cyrus's decree and that the king give his opinion on the matter. And so uh, upon Tatanai's inquiry, a letter is written up, as we've just uh, kind of surveyed, and that letter is see, uh, sent to King Darius. And then in chapter 6, we see uh, Darius's reply as well as a search made for uh, King Cyrus's uh, original decree. And so look with me at, for a moment now, just at chapter 6, at the first few verses. It says in chapter 6, Then King Darius issued a, a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at Akmatha, in the palace that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and in it a record was written thus. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid, its height 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits. With three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber, let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury, Also, let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem, and brought it to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. God. And so we see uh, in the beginning of chapter 6, that indeed the scroll, a scroll was found, that on it was the inscription of, 
this decree made by Cyrus uh, some 17 or years, uh, 16 or 17 years prior to this, uh, to this time. And the fact that Darius's interest in the situation and a decree for a search to be made for Cyrus's decree is yet, I think, another demonstration of a providential act of God. You know, Darius received the letter. He could have simply said, you know what, I'm not going to even bother with it. You know, I don't want them to rebuild the temple or whatever. Or, you know, who cares if a king, you know, prior to me made some, you know, proclamation, I'm going to do things how I want to do them. You know, we see that all the time, you know, in, in government officials and presidents. You know, they undo the things that were just done previously by the king. And so Darius, I think, certainly had the authority to just say, you know what, forget it. Here, you know, there's a new king in town, and this is how it's going to be. But the fact that he showed interest, searched for that decree, and then has a favorable reply, I think, speaks to the fact that God was providentially working, not just in King Cyrus some 17 years prior, but also in this king as well in that day and age. And so in the archives, uh, they find a scroll bearing the inscription of Cyrus's decree, in the province of Media, in the land of the Medes. And interestingly, the inscription contains notable differences than the decree recorded in Ezra 1. Remember back in Ezra 1, we find a record of that decree. And the language we find here in Ezra 6 is, is notably different. You know, it's not the same content. You might uh, ask yourself, you know, why is that? Is this two different kind of records? I don't think so. I think what happened is in Ezra chapter 1, we find kind of a summarized or uh, specific portion of the decree being recorded there, the, the portion that really pertains to the, all of Israel and, the, and the, uh, the, the permission to return to the land, whereas here in chapter 6, we find another portion of the decree which specifically has to do with the temple, and, you know, the, uh, the contents of the temple uh, that were to be returned. And so what Ezra is recording here is the portion of the decree that pertains specifically to Tatanai's inquiry about the rebuilding of the temple. You know, Tatanai didn't, re- didn't care about the fact that is- the Israelites returned. He was more concerned about the temple. And so we find here the portion of the decree that pertained to that specific request or inquiry. Maybe you have a different opinion about that, but uh, we could talk about that later and what exactly that looks like. Well, Darius's reply indicates he took seriously the decree and was adamant about nations and kings observing its instructions. Yet again, another example of an act of God's providence. And a few noteworthy remarks about Darius's reply Look with me uh, at verse 8. It says, uh, <clears throat> actually, look, let me uh, go back to verse 6. It says, Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai, and your com- companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves from there. So this is Darius's reply to Tatanai's inquiry, beginning here in verse 6. Verse 7, let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. And so we see 
from the onset that uh, King Darius's reply is very favorable to uh, to the Jews. And we see that uh, that King Darius does, in fact, take seriously the decree of his predecessor, uh, King uh, Cyrus. So we see in verse 7 that uh, in this reply, a few noteworthy things. First, that no one was to interfere with the work being done. King Darius is very adamant about that. Furthermore, we see in verse 8, taxes were to be collected and given promptly to the elders of Israel to cover the costs of the temple. I think that's in keeping with uh, the uh, decree of Cyrus, which said that the, that, uh, that, uh, the costs of the temple was to come or to be uh, furnished through the king's treasury. Verse 9, we see that provisions for the temple sacrifices were to be supplied daily, by the, perhaps by the people of that land around Jerusalem, or perhaps, again, through the treasury of the king. Uh, in verses 11 and 12, we see that any attempt to alter the decree would be punishable by death. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. He says here in his reply, Also I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected, and let him be hanged on it. And let his house be made a refuse, a refuse heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree. Let it be done diligently. And so we see here Darius keeps very seriously uh, this uh, decree of Cyrus. In fact, so much that he... You know, he uh, decrees that anyone who alters this edict should be put to death. And I find it interesting. He also, you know, kind of calls upon God to enact uh, a punishment as well. And whether God would destroy kings or people who altered, the, the, altered this decree or destroy the temple ultimately wasn't up to uh, King Darius. You know, he kind of beseeches the Lord to do this, but, uh, you know, it's up to God whether or not... He, he would, uh, you know, obey, so to speak, you know, King Darius's command. However, Darius's intention in saying this, I think, is admirable. You know, he takes seriously the fact that the temple was to be rebuilt, and he doesn't want to see any king or people go against this decree. Well, in verses 13 to 22 of chapter 6, we see that the Israelites do indeed complete the temple. It's dedicated and they worship the Lord by keeping uh, the feasts. In verses 13 to 15, we see that the temple is completed. How, uh, and we see that uh, verses 13 through 15 communicate how, why, and when the temple ultimately was completed. How was it completed? Well, we see the elders built and prospered through the seminal role of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, it says in verse 14 of chapter 6, So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Idu, just like we saw at the beginning of chapter 1. It was their prophesying which revitalized the spirit of Israel and, it, and its leaders to act in obedience and faith to God's word. 
And the impact that Haggai and Zechariah had carried much weight, the fact that they responded to their messages and obeyed God's word, demonstrates that they were very influential in their preaching. Why was the temple ultimately completed? Well, the temple was rebuilt according to divine command and human decree. What do I mean by that? Well, note the human side of the equation. We have the decree of Cyrus, as well as kind of the, the uh, edict of Darius here that we just looked at. And also, it's uh, interestingly, interesting that uh, Ezra notes in verse 14, Artaxerxes, king of Persia. If you know kind of the timeline, you might realize, well, he comes much or a bit later in the timeline you know, than, what we've, than uh, 516 B.C. So why does Ezra say that the temple was completed because of King Artaxerxes? I think what Ezra do is, is doing is he's drawing upon the fact that uh, Artaxerxes later was favorable uh, to the Israelites and allowed them to rebuild the wall. And so what Ezra is doing is drawing upon all of the people that God used in this circumstance to demonstrate the fact that God providentially worked through these kings. So that's the, the human side of the, of the equation, so to speak, as to why the temple was ultimately rebuilt. But there's also, of course, operating in tandem the divine side of it, which was the commandment given by God that we see in verse 14. It says uh, in the middle of verse, verse 14, and they built and finished it, what? According to the commandment of the God of Israel. And then according to the commandment of Cyrus, Darius, and, the, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And so we see here the human side of the equation and the divine side of the equation working and operating in tandem so that God's ultimate will and purpose would be completed. When was the temple completed? We find in verse uh, 15 that the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adair, which is in the sixth year, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So that would be 516 BC. So it took about four years from the time of Haggai and Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, to this time for the temple to be completed. This was roughly 70 years since Solomon's temple was destroyed and 21 years since the first wave of Israelites returned to Jerusalem in 537 B.C. And so despite opposition from outside the community and apathy uh, and disobedience from within the community, God's promise through the prophet Isaiah, like we looked at before, was ultimately fulfilled. Now, moving on here, we see that the temple is dedicated, and this dedication was surrounded by a spirit of great joy. There was great joy as they celebrated the dedication of the temple. Look with me at verse 16 of chapter 6. It says, Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. 
Of course, in one sense, the dedication of this temple paled in comparison to Solomon's temple and that dedication, but there was still great cause for joy for the people of Israel. God's temple had been rebuilt according to his command, and they once again were able to fully uh, follow God's word, the, the book of Moses, as it were, in keeping with all of its commands. Now that they had the temple rebuilt, they could offer the sacrifices as God's word had commanded them to do. The dedication we see consisted of the following elements, uh, peace or fellowship offerings, as we saw there, and many uh, 100 bulls, 200 rams, and 400 lambs being offered. We also see that there is a sin offering for all of Israel made. The sin offering sought to forgive and restore the community because of uh, some inadvertent sin that was committed. Think about the fact, for some 70 years or perhaps more, this sin offering was not able to be kept. And so for some 70 years, there, in a sense or on a community level, there was this weight of guilt upon the people. And nothing was able to be done about that until this time when they could offer this sacrifice, this sin offering on behalf of the whole community. Imagine the joy that would come from that, being able to uh, partake in the, you know, in the sp- specific requirements of that sin offering, the bull, uh, <clears throat> the bull being sacrificed, that blood bring, being brought into the Holy of Holies as it was required in order for the people's sins to be forgiven. We also see that the priests and the Levites were organized into their divisions according to the book of Moses. And we said before that's a reoccurring theme here, that once again the people of God were keeping the book of Moses. They were keeping God's commands as was required of them. Finally, in the last portion of chapter 6, verses 19 uh, through 22, we see the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are observed. And again, at least 70 years had passed since the Israelites were able to keep the Passover. The priests and the Levites purified themselves through ritual cleansing, which allowed them to make these sacrifices. We see that the children of Israel ate together with other Jews who had ritually cleansed themselves. Look with me uh, at uh, verse 21. It says, Then the children of Israel who had returned from from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. These, uh, these people that they ate with were likely Jews who had remained in the land during the exile, who were now, you know, had gone through the ritual cleansing so that they could be part of God's, you know, covenant community in that sense. And they, together with the Jews had returned, who had returned, ate together and observed the Passover. Because they sought to re- reestablish communion with God, it says they, they sought... Uh, Where is it? Verse 21 here. They did this in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And so we see here a real revitalized spirit, a real desire to seek God in his ways. 
And then finally, we see the Feast of Unleavened Bread was also observed, which lasted seven days. And we see that God gave them great joy. Look with me at verse 22. It says, And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Ezra acknowledges here at the end of chapter 6 that God was the divine cause of causing the work to prosper by turning the heart of the king in their favor. And it was also God who gave them great joy as well as they observed these feasts in the Passover. And so as we close this evening, as a way of application in our lives today, I think we can draw four things from this passage that we looked at this evening. And first, by way of question, in accord with what we see in the hearts of the Israelites before Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to them, let me ask you this question. Has your heart grown callous and apathetic to the things of God? That was the case of the Israelites until, you know, they kind of got a kick in the pants through the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. They rebuked the Israelites for, you know, focusing more on the mundane things of life, the material things of life. And so are you more concerned about life matters and material things than the glory of God and his worship? How you spend your time and energy and money is often a good litmus test to determine where your priorities are. Haggai and Zechariah rebuked the people because their priorities were on, you know, living in the land, enjoying their paneled houses, and they're wondering, you know, why aren't we receiving blessing? You know, I'll tell you why. Because you're not keeping God's commands. You're not prioritizing the worship of God, the house of God. And so where are your priorities? Do not be like God's people who are running to their homes while God's house was being neglected. Maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but are you neglecting to be in God's house while you enjoy you know, the comforts of your home? You know, so focused on you know, keeping the house up you know, and you know, things like that versus being in God's house to worship him. Secondly, as we consider the truth of this passage, we can learn that God's revelation, as we saw through the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, but now all of God's revelation as we have it today, you know, all 66 books of the Bible, God's revelation is meant to motivate, to bring change and work in the lives of God's people. That's what God's word is meant to do. And it can do that. It can have that profound influence so as to cause us to repent of any you know, evil in our hearts, any disobedience. The response of, Israel's, of Israel to God's revelation is exemplary for our lives today. We should respond in obedience and faith to the proclamation of God's word, just like the Israelites did in response to Haggai and Zechariah. Thirdly, when our obedience and faith are tested, we must determine to trust God. God had told them to rebuild the temple. Shouldn't they trust that God will make a way for that to happen, no matter the difficulty that might come? 
trust him that if he wills us to do something, he will make possible a way for us to obey his word. He's not going to give us a task that's impossible to keep. So trust him at his word and obey in faith, even if that way is difficult and has bumps along the way. Fourthly and finally, obedience and faith bring joy. When God's covenant people obeyed God, they enjoyed great blessing and great joy. When they were living disobediently, things were much more difficult. Of course, although doing God's will does not always guarantee ease in this life, it does promise joy. We saw there at the end of chapter 6 that when they simply obeyed God, did his will, God gave them great joy. There was great joy when they finally obeyed him and did his will. And so as, a, as we consider our responsibilities, determine in your heart to obey God, no matter how difficult it may be, trusting him at his word, that if we obey him, he will give us great joy. It won't always be easy, but he will give us joy in the task. And allow God's word to have the effect in your heart that it did in the hearts of of the Israelites at the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. As you read God's word, as we study it together even this evening, may it have that profound and influential effect as God's spirit works in us. Let's close as we end our time this evening in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray now as we go our way, may our hearts be moved at the revelation of God as seen in your word, like it moved God's people to do the task that they had, he had laid out for them, to obey God and to trust him at his word, regardless of how easy or difficult the way is to fulfill that task. Lord, may we not be so focused on the mundane things of life so as to neglect to worship you, to bring glory to you, to observe your commands, to gather together to worship you. Lord, when we simply obey your word, we learn that there is great joy in doing that, and you give us that joy. May that be true in our lives as we go about our week, uh, this week, and as we gather again next week to worship you together again. And uh, even this Wednesday, as we give thanks for all your blessings. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.